Listen to the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. These are words penned over 3,000 years ago. Here it is on the screen for you. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. Though many today feel astonished and horrified about the subject, while others at the same time feel evolved and liberated, these words apply just as much to sex and sexuality as they do any other subject. There is nothing new under the sun. Though every generation, though each generation can invent new language, though each generation can package things differently, there have always been, been men and women who fancied themselves rebels or revolutionaries or innovators or pioneers or emancipators when it comes to sex. But... What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. This morning I'd like to talk with you about sexual morality. Sexual morality. Though I will be driving the bus or the boat or whichever tour vehicle you prefer... Though I will be driving, our guide this morning will be the Apostle Paul. But even better than that, even better than Paul, our ultimate, our ultimate light this morning will come from the being, from the one who created us, our maker. So since there is nothing new under the sun, fear not. Don't be shaken. Because there is nothing new under the sun, let's turn to God's enduring word together. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning my goal is not simply to highlight for you certain proof texts or gotcha verses. Alright? There is a style of, in, of thinking and engaging even with the world that depends on proof texts and gotcha verses. Uh, the problem is that usually when you have these, no matter the subject you're dealing with, somebody's got some imaginative way of kind of twisting that around. One of the things that we want to make sure that we do is allow verses to lead us into bigger ways of thinking, principles about some of these subjects, specifically this morning, this issue of sexual morality. So what I'd like to do is think about more about these founda the foundational ideas that are revealed in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians. I don't know if reading through our reading plan this past week, you were able to pick up on that subject as it kept popping up. These principles that we want to look at of, of a scriptural sexual morality 
are like the molten lava that we discover breaking forth from the fissures or volcanoes of the specific circumstances taking place in the church at Corinth. It's coming up, isn't it? Right? We see it now on the surface. But we want to talk about that molten lava itself. The thinking that Paul reveals here. So without further ado, let me give you an example of one of these principles. The first one is revealed in chapter 5. It's there that we discovered, number one, while everyone has a sexual morality, most are usually me-centered rather than God-centered. While everyone has a sexual morality, most are usually me-centered rather than God-centered. Look at the very first verse of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported, says Paul, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Talk about a troubling scenario. Talk about a troubling scenario. A man in the church is carrying on an adulterous affair with his stepmother. And just as disturbing, just as disturbing, the Christians at Corinth are doing nothing about it. They're doing nothing. But notice one reason Paul gives us in verse 1 one reason why their response, their, or lack of response, which is a response, their response to this sexual immorality is so shocking. Because even their pagan neighbors know this is wrong. The word pagan here is a translator's choice. It simply is the word Gentile. In Greek, the word ethne, where we get ethnic from, it means the nations. In context, referring to Jews, when it's, a, when it's kind of a counterpoint, it means Gentiles is a good way to translate it. When it's in kind of a counterpoint to the word Christian or believer, then sometimes the word pagan is used. All it simply means is someone who is on the outside spiritually, that is someone who is not, or we could say not yet, one of God's people. So those who are not God's people understand that this is wrong. As Paul points out, even those who do not know the true God do know that such behavior is sexually immoral. Their sexual morality, that is what they understand to be right and wrong when it comes to sex. That's what I mean when I say sexual morality. What is right and wrong when it comes to sex. Even their sexual morality condemns this behavior as very, very wrong. As an aside, think about this point number one. There are many people that you will talk to and many people you will, will hear in this culture who think, who would, who would tell you and trumpet loudly, they would say, they would say, I am about freedom when it comes to sex and sexuality. Freedom. As if they have no morality, if there's no boundaries, but every single person, I should say most people, have boundaries. There are places where they draw lines, don't they? So it's not a matter of whether if you're being accused of drawing boundary lines and not allowing freedom in these areas. No, 
They're drawing lines and you're drawing lines. The difference comes when you ask the question, why do you draw the line there while I draw the line here? Paul recognizes that even among those who are non-Christians, they have boundary lines as he is using towards, towards the, to, to the shame of the Corinthians. But Paul's language and logic here seem to imply the way he says this about the pagans, about the, about the unbelievers. The logic here seems to imply that in general, there are plenty of things that are tolerated among these unbelievers. Did you sense that? He says, even this is tolerated among them. I mean, they tolerate this. Boy, those guys, they tolerate a lot of things. But they're not, sorry, they're not tolerating this. There were plenty of things that the unbelievers tolerated when it came to their sexual morality. Things they would say are right and good that Paul would, of course, take issue with. We'll talk about, we'll talk more about these first century pagan moralities in just a minute. But unless you've been living under a rock the last 55 years, you know that sexual moralities, plural, in our own society have continued to multiply over the years, haven't they? What we need to understand about these sexual moralities is that the ones today that we see all around us just like they were in in ancient times what we need to understand about these sexual moralities is that they are almost always based on simply on the preferences of the individual that's it they are not based on the inherited wisdom of humankind usually that's dismissed poo-pooed they are not based on science They are not based on sociology or any kind of data regarding human flourishing. That is, the way people live, the consequences that play out in their lives, the consequences that are seen in families, the consequences that are seen in people's mental health, their, their mental wellness. Not based on this at all. These moralities are built and defended in light of individual preference. Of course, that shouldn't be surprising to us. On the pedestal, in today's cultural temple, individual preference is is enshrined as that which is most holy. Have you noticed that? Of course, that basis should deeply concern us in terms of sexual morality. That that fact that that is the basis of a sexual morality should deeply concern us. But in contrast to these revered moralities, Paul offers us a revealed morality. Look here. He offers us a revealed morality, one that does correspond to tradition, so many traditions, and, 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 and inherited wisdom, one that does correspond to science, one that does correspond to what much of the data confirms about real human flourishing the way people really are the consequences in real life so what does god what is this god revealed god-centered morality reveal it describes number two number two god's sexual morality is grounded in the fact your creator cares about what you do with the body he created It's grounded in the fact that your creator cares about what you do with the body he created. 
In past generations, uh, we would not have needed to emphasize this point. But it's extremely important that we emphasize it now. Look over at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's helpful to know, let's stop there. It's helpful to note that the word other in verse 18, do you see that? Every other sin. That word other is not present in the Greek. It's there because the translator feels like it's implied by the context, by the syntax. But it's not present there in the Greek. So if we translate it just straight, literally, it would be every sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, why is that important to point out? Because you may have noticed, the translators help us here in English with this, you may have noticed when you've been reading through 1 Corinthians, for those who have been following that daily reading plan, that Paul often quotes certain phrases and those phrases are actually coming most likely from the corinthians that they wrote to him or like it said in chapters one a gal named chloe and her household or her entourage they've come to give a report about the state of the corinthian church and they may have brought some of these slogans that were being used in corinth slogans and phrases ideas that were being used to justify all sorts of behavior. And this, in fact, may be one of them. In the ESV, it's not marked with quotes, but I think it makes better sense to actually mark it with quotes. That is, quotes, every sin a person commits is outside the body, Paul says, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You see, one of the sexual moralities at work in the first century, this first century Greek city, was most likely, it seems, built around the idea that sin was something outside the body so that it didn't really matter what you did with your body because what mattered most, what really mattered, were internal spiritual realities. This was a kind of dualism that would eventually, years after this, give rise to something we call Gnosticism. We would call this proto-Gnostic proto-Gnostic ideas, early Gnostic ideas. This duality of what, what happens on the inside is what really matters. This outside stuff, every sin is about outside the body. Paul says, no, you're actually sinning against your own body. Some in this church seem to be saying, do what you want with your body since Jesus has redeemed your spirit. But Paul wants them to understand that the body matters. Your body matters because God made you embodied. He made you embodied. Your body is not simply a shell. Your body is not merely a vehicle for your spirit. Your body is an essential part of who you are. So much so that Jesus will redeem your body in the end for eternity. He will transform it for an eternal existence. Verse 14. 
Paul is crystal clear about the importance of our bodies. Look at verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. What did God intend? Why did He create the body? Why did He make us embodied? He made us for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's the ultimate purpose of our bodies, to glorify God, to serve His purposes, to live according to His design. What Paul wants them to understand, and God wants us to understand this morning, is how certain stunning spiritual realities are really inseparable from our bodily reality. We don't always think about this, but again, he wants us to see spiritual realities, bodily realities. He says they're like this. They're like this. You can't separate them, Corinthians. Let me give you two examples. First, verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Sadly, Corinth was the home of the temple of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. The Greek geographer Strabo described how 1,000 cult prostitutes worked at that temple. And how, like an ancient Las Vegas or Amsterdam, the city was renowned in the ancient world for its sexual tourism. So it's really not surprising that Paul mentions prostitution here. Not at all. It was a common part of life in that city. But what the Corinthians needed to know was that God had created sex to be more than just a physical union. He created it for more than that. It was designed to also create a strong relational slash spiritual union. Our world knows this. It's part of what makes sex so appealing. It's part of the reason that so many in our culture look to sex to give them things sex can never give them. Connection, acceptance, affirmation, belonging. You see, they're twisting God's design. God did make sex to do that. But He made it. Well, we'll get there. You you know why. We'll get there, though. We'll talk about that. So that's one of these spiritual realities that intersects with the body. It's so, it's so important to see how it links up with the body here. We can't separate that spiritual union and physical union. The, 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 there's another reality here, a spiritual reality. This relates, of course, to a second spiritual reality. Look back at verse 19. 619. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? One reason your body is so important, believer, is because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, how can any of us treat the body like it doesn't matter spiritually? And if you're not a believer this morning, then simply know that your body can be a temple to the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that that astounds you, that that's appealing to you, that God would dwell within you. 
How can any of us treat the body like it doesn't matter spiritually? Paul made a similar point a few verses earlier when talking about prostitution. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members, the parts of Christ's body and make them members of a prostitute? Never, says Paul. Sexual matters matter spiritually. Do you believe that? Sexual matters matter spiritually. It matters what you do with your body. Contrary to popular wisdom. Number three, sexual morality, again, right and wrong when it comes to sex, should recognize that desire is natural, but also unnaturally tainted. Desire is natural, but also unnaturally tainted. Look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, quoting some of the, he's quoting here some of the Corinthians justifications. Again, notice them in the quotes. All things are lawful for me. Uh, but not all things are helpful, says Paul. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And I think the quote actually continues here. The ESV ends it there. I think it picks up this too. And God will destroy both one and the other. So what? So what? The body, the body won't last is what they're saying. So who cares what I'm doing? The body's not going to last anyway. God's going to destroy it in the end. Again, Paul, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now notice the different strands of reasoning Paul is trying to confront here. First, there were some who were attempting in this church to rationalize their behavior by appealing to their freedom in Christ. I'm free in Jesus. Paul, you told us that we're free in Christ. Therefore, I'm going to go do what I want. You see the same slogan, all things are lawful for me. It pops up again in chapter 10, verse 23. There it is again. So all things are lawful for me. It appears again. It's one of the points he, they're making here in regard to sexuality as well. So, so second, that's one, that's one strand of reasoning Paul's trying to confront. Second, some were arguing that if the body has an appetite, naturally, it should be satisfied. Just as the stomach craves food, our sexual organs crave sexual satisfaction. Seems reasonable, right? As some would say today, sex is natural, so do what feels right to you. Right? This is all, this is your body. Don't be ashamed of your body. This is how everything works. Do what you want. Now, it's important to note that Paul never dismisses or denigrates these passions. He'll go on to describe them as passions. He doesn't dismiss or denigrate them, but he does challenge their reasoning, the Corinthians' reasoning about such appetites. The existence of such appetites doesn't justify every behavior driven by such appetites. That's where they're going wrong. No, no, no. We all know this. 
Even those who say they want, want to make this argument, they re- actually know that not every behavior driven by such appetites is okay. For example, take food for example. They've brought it up here. They're using it as one of their illustrations to say, well, it's just like food. When you're hungry, what do you do? You go get something to eat. But notice what Paul later does in this same letter. In chapter 8, he confronts them about food, specifically food sacrifice to idols and how it may cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble if they've come from an idol-worshiping past. So Paul says, I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care if you want to eat that. There are some principles, there are some boundaries, there are some guidelines when it comes to your appetites. What's right and wrong in terms of your appetite. And then again with food in chapter 11, he goes on to talk about food as it relates to the Lord's table. Remember the Lord's table in the early church was part of a communal fellowship meal that the believers had together. But guess what? Some of the Corinthians, probably those who were more well off, could get to the church earlier, could get to that gathering place earlier, and they brought their food with them, and they were not sharing, they were not waiting for people to come, they were hungry and they were just eating. This is why Paul tells them to discern the body when they come together. And then he tells them specifically, so if you are hungry, eat at home before you come. Again, guidelines, boundaries, self-control, restraint in regard to food. Paul is doing the exact same thing here. He says, Paul says, your appetite may crave this, your appetite may crave that, but not all things are helpful. Your appetite may crave this or crave that, but you should not be dominated by anything. Our bodies were made with sexual appetites, absolutely. True, yes. But verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual morality. And yet we crave it. We're tainted. Natural desires tainted unnaturally. So because because our desires can be tainted, because our desires can be tainted, we recognize the need for self-control and nutritional discernment when it comes to food, don't we? Right? Right? Because we know our appetites when it comes to food can be tainted, what do we do? We learn to practice self-control and nutritional discernment. This wasn't as much of a problem back in the day because it was only the really wealthy that could afford to eat as much as they wanted. We're completely spoiled today. Right? We're completely spoiled. We have an abundance of food today. But the point is the same. The need for self-control and nutritional discernment when it comes to food. And in that same way, we also need to practice self-control and sexual discernment when it comes to our sexual desires. You see how Paul is making this, helping them understand this? Where does that discernment come from? Ultimately, from the sexual morality revealed by our Creator. Yes, it's confirmed by the best of our inherited wisdom traditions. Yes, it's confirmed by science, how the human body works, who we are. Yes, it's confirmed by sociological data, behavior, psychological data, mental wellness. It's confirmed by those things. 
just like we have the food pyramid, right, that helps us with nutrition or help past generations in nutrition. There always seems to be a new diet out there <laughs> telling you what's good and bad and something that was bad for you now is good and something that was good for you back when uh, is bad for you now. But still, we see the science confirming, and we anecdotally, right, experientially, we, we know that if we just, you know, if I eat 16,000 Three Musketeers bars, I'm not going to be doing great, you know, within minutes. The next day, I'm certainly not going to be going great, you know, because my body was not made for that. Here, ultimately, our Creator reveals to us the truth about these desires. Our Creator, remember, our Creator is the designer of sex and sexuality. He made your sex and sexuality for a reason. He gave those to you for a purpose. So what should we do with such appetites, such desires, such passions? Well, in the next chapter, chapter 7, Paul addresses that very issue by reminding them that number 4, number 4, the greatest good of God's sexual morality is God's masterpiece of marriage. The greatest good of God's sexual morality is God's masterpiece of marriage. If sexual morality is about what is right and wrong, what is good and bad when it comes to sex, then it is definitely good to avoid the bad. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to mishear this. It is a very good thing to avoid the bad. It is right to reject the wrong. A life lived with self-control in regard to our sexual desires is a very good thing. It honors God. It glorifies God. But the greatest good, this is what I'm talking about, the greatest good, those things are good, self-control, restraint, purity in that regard. But the greatest good has to be not simply restraint in terms of our sexual appetite, but satisfying our sexual appetites in the way God designed them to be satisfied. Paul addresses this very thing when we move into chapter 7. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And here's another quote, something they wrote to him about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. True or not true? Hold that in your, thought, in your mind. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Did you see Paul quoting the Corinthians again? Yep, this is part of what they've written to him. Not just slogans maybe they were running around with, but actually they wrote to him about some matters and said, help us out with this. We believe that it's not good for a man, to, some of us believe it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. So interestingly, it appears that some of them in the church, another group within the church, were reacting to the culture, were reacting to what they understood to be the teaching from Paul and the apostles, from Jesus, reacting to maybe their past lives, like their lives before Christ. They were reacting to the spirit is more important than the body group. They were reacting to the sex is natural, do what feels good crowd. They were reacting by swinging to another misguided extreme. And this is what we see here. This group seemed to be saying, no sex at all is the best 
course of action. It's how we can be the most pure. We can most glorify God when we have no sexual activity in our lives. Now, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Is that true? Sometimes it absolutely is, right? (laughs) It absolutely is in certain contexts. Absolutely. But it cannot be applied in every context. every, Every other instance outside of marriage, that is certainly true. But within marriage, this is what Paul is trying to pull, it's to point out to them. Paul will certainly go on in this chapter to argue for the benefits. Argue for the benefits of celibate singleness in terms of serving Christ. It's a neglected idea today, but it's extremely important that we understand that. Paul made it clear, if you are single here this morning, you are celibate, you, are, you have devoted yourself to, to God and obeying His word. To remain celibate, to remain sexually inactive until you are married, or you say, you know what, I'm not planning to be married, then you glorify God because you are even more available for His work. Your, your time is not taken with a spouse, your time is not taken with raising children, very good things, but you can devote even more of your time and yourself and your thoughts to the Lord Jesus. That's how Paul lived his life, right, as a single man. It's exactly what he did. And so he, he certainly trumpets the benefits of living a celibate, single life. We see that here very clearly. But he knows that this is not God's plan for everyone. Probably even the majority. This is not God's plan. That's why he writes in verse 9, If they cannot exercise self-control, if you cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is Better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, Paul doesn't condemn those who burn with passion, does he? He's not condemning those people. He's trying to tell them that if you have those sexual appetites and you find yourself constantly struggling with them, then there's a probably a good chance that God intends you to be married. <laughs> you're not going to live the celibate single life. That's, a, that's not what you're called to. Each one, as Paul says here, has his own calling. So if you have those appetites, if you have those desires, if you have those passions, there's nothing wrong with you. But bring those to God's context for where those sexual appetites are to be satisfied. And that is but that is the marriage of a man and a woman as we see here. So, because why marriage? Why does he direct his readers back to marriage? Because just as God is the designer of sex, he's also the designer of marriage, isn't he? In fact, he made the two to go hand in hand. Back in chapter 6, the previous chapter, remember he quotes even from Genesis 2, and the two shall become one flesh. He was speaking there about the way that sex can, sex can function in terms of creating a, a relational spiritual union as well. He said, he's warning them about that reality in terms of a liaison, a rendezvous with a prostitute. He's saying that's true because God designed that element to function within marriage. That's where it's supposed to create the relational union, Right? That's where it's supposed to create that relational spiritual union. That's the purpose that it serves. But like we as human beings do in so many ways, we want to 
rip apart God's design and take the pieces that we like and push away the pieces we don't. And we want to put those pieces into weird new configurations and say, this will satisfy me, this will satisfy me. If I, if I do this and arrange it this way, I can rework it into something that's meaningful and powerful. And then we tell ourselves lies about what it is. You see, you can't separate the relational and reproductive design of God in sex and sexuality. There's a reason God gave us a sexual reproductive system for reproduction, right? The sexual system is for reproduction. Why is the relational component so important? Because the two shall become one flesh. What does that mean? It means they're establishing a new household, a new family unit. No one should tell me today, even though many of you have even personally or know of someone who has been raised by a single parent, and God bless those single parents. God bless them as they persevered in their lives. But not one of them, I think, if they were honest with themselves, and not one of you would ever be able to persuade me otherwise, that every child deserves a mother and father. Every child deserves a mother and father. Sometimes it does not work out. Sometimes that's for the best, given the the identity of the character of the person we're talking about. Every child deserves a mother and a father. And one of the ways God creates that strong union between that mother and father is through the sexual union, as we see here. So again, Paul is not dismissing the passions. He's directing these passions. He made the designer of sex is also the designer of marriage. He made the two to go hand in hand. To be clear, if you want to hear Paul talk about the glories of marriage, this is not really the best place to come. (laughs) Ephesians 5 would be a great one, right? The end of Ephesians 5 would be a great place to hear Paul talk about the glories of marriage. Here he's not really arguing about, he's not talking about the glories of marriage. The section here is much more practical in light of the problem. The dominant theme is the problem of sexual immorality. He's talking about sex in marriage in a very practical, utilitarian, functional way and how it serves, the place it serves in God's design. But this is a really good reminder for us that marriage between a man and a woman is the only relationship in which sexual desires are to be fulfilled since marriage alone fulfills both the relational and reproductive designs and aims and intentions of God the one who made us. Now, there is so much more. We could spend another two hours talking about what the Bible teaches us about sex and sexual, sexual morality or sexuality, sexual immorality. There's so much we could go into to talk about marriage, about morality, about sex. It's important we understand these things, isn't it? It's critically important that we understand these things. Why? Because they've been revealed to us by God and they're integral integral to our everyday lives, our existence as humans. Uh, But even more so, we could add another reason. And that reason is because every day we and our kids are being bombarded by destructive, me-centered sexual moralities that call us to indulge our pleasures but ignore our taintedness. Every day we're inundated in those depictions. 
in those redefinitions. Every day we're called to indulge our pleasures but ignore our taintedness and sadly many of us have. Many of us are. This morning God wants you to remorsefully reject all those paths. He wants to offer you something far, far better. And He doesn't simply want to correct you. He does. We need correction, don't we? (laughs) He doesn't simply want to correct us. He doesn't simply want to guide us, and we need that guidance. But in these chapters, He also wants to comfort us. He wants to comfort us. He wants you to know that forgiveness and change are possible. Look back at chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is Paul's reminder for these believers. His reminder about how God had already worked among them. We haven't talked a lot about the audience here that he was speaking to, but we learned something important here. Look at verses 9 through 11. Do not be deceived, says Paul, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me stop there real quick. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm writing to you and warning you about the culture's influence on you and your misguided thinking and trying to correct you in light of the truth about God's sexual morality. For those who ignore what I say, for those who are unrepentant, who are callous, insensitive to the things of God, for those who consistent, continue to live and walk down this path, and this characterizes them, their lives, these kinds of things, then know that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're demonstrating that they don't possess the Spirit of God who convicts and brings us to repentance. A serious warning. And, but Paul, look at verse 11. He says all these things and he says, And such were some of you. Oh, wait a minute. What? Such were some of you. Such were some of you, Paul writes. He's writing to a church that has practiced these kinds of things. People who have lived these lifestyles. But what does he tell them? Such were some of you were, past tense, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, change is possible. Restoration and healing is possible. A new life is possible. We don't have to live that old way. Such were some of you. But there's something new that God is doing. The good news about Jesus offers hope to the sexually burdened. Do you believe that? 
The good news about Jesus offers forgiveness for the sexually guilty. Do you believe that? The good news about Jesus offers restoration for the sexually strained. Do you believe that? And it does this by pointing us to an even greater relationship. One that no sexual liaison could ever match. Ever. And that relationship is talked about in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 6. You are not your own, says Paul. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the gospel, isn't he? The good news that Christ died for us to pay for our redemption, our ransom, to set us free, but free in service to him. We become gloriously slaves of Christ. And that might sound bad to some, but it's what we were made to be, servants of God. It's where we find our greatest joy and our deepest fulfillment, being slaves of Christ. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself, writes Paul. So glorify God in your body. Ask the one who owns your body what you should do with it, how you should use it, how you should live. Christ died for us that we might live for Him. Amen? In every way including sexually. So will you ask Him even now to help you in this way? Will you, help, will you ask Him to help you? Do you know what it means to trust Him, that you belong to Him? Ask Him to give you discernment in an age full of such misinformation and such distortions. He will answer that prayer. He will help us to glorify Him in every way, including in this area of sex and sexuality. Amen? Let's pray. Would you pray with me?